taken from the book of the Acts of the Apostles. It is, I'm reading from the New English Bible, chapter 9, verse 1, following. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and applied for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, authorizing him to arrest anyone he found, men or women, who followed the new way and bring them to Jerusalem. While he was still on the road nearing Damascus, suddenly a light flashed from the sky all around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Tell me, Lord, he said, who you are. The voice answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you have to do. Meanwhile, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but could see no one. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. He was blind for three days and took no food or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. He had a vision in which he heard the voice of the Lord, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go at once to Straight Street, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. You will find him at prayer. He has had a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have often heard about this man and all the harm he has done to thy people in Jerusalem. And here he is with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who invoke thy name. But the Lord said to him, You must go, for this man is my chosen instrument to bring my name before the nations and their kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him all that he must go through for my sake. So Ananias went, he entered the house, laid his hands on him and said, Saul, my brother, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me to you so that you may recover your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately it seemed that scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and thereupon he was baptized, and afterwards he took food and drink. Saul grew more and more forceful and silenced the Jews of Damascus with his cogent proof that Jesus was the Messiah. May God add his blessing to this reading from his word. Let me begin by saying that uh, this Explo title is nothing original with me, but a very great event took place in our lives this summer in Dallas when it was possible for me to go with a great part of my family to that great gathering of students in Dallas, Texas. I want to say without any embarrassment, hesitation, qualification, that that was the greatest single religious meeting that I ever went to in my life. I don't care who argued about whether or not to pray for it. God blessed it. I was there and I got the blessing. And I'm here to tell you. I'm going to tell you some more. Now then, 
When Dr. Billy Graham stood up, he said that the purpose of this great gathering, 80,000 registered. There were 180,000 on the last day. There were at least 100,000 every night jammed into the cotton bowl. And here you saw a turned-on generation of the most dedicated, committed, earnest Christian young people that I ever laid eyes on. I never dreamed there were that many young people who loved Jesus so much, and it shown in their faces. One cop at a turnstile said that he was bumped into 3,000 times, and all 3,000 said, pardon me. <laughs> Uh, the chairman one night said that it normally took 15 truckloads of, uh, of li that they normally took away 15 truckloads of litter from the cotton bowl after it was packed with the 75,000 people. But here with 100,000 people, he jokingly said that night we only found two pieces of paper. You saw young people who would actually go around and pick up paper that someone else threw down. They didn't tell them to pick it up, they'd go pick it up themselves. I saw a spirit that moved me deeply. I was one of the 200 speakers. The man who chauffeured me around in the car was a certified public accountant who makes a very nice income every year and whose time is very valuable. But he gave his time to chauffeur me all the way from Dallas to North Texas State University to speak to the, my part of the students in, in the North Texas State University's auditorium. And let me say, when I spoke of conversion, there was applause. I didn't assume that there would be so many evangelical Presbyterians any place. But one day in the course of a sermon, and you had to make your sermons uh, be timed so that they'd go about twice as long, because the audiences were amazingly responsive to anything. If you ask a rhetorical question, you got an immediate answer. <laughs> they were very alert. And so I said in the course of one of my sermons as I preached away, what is the chief aim of man anyway? And to the great amazement, to glorify God came back. So I know there were Presbyterians there. <laughs> uh, they were there. To glorify God and glorify him, they did. They glorified him and they enjoyed him. And not only that, but they went away from the cotton bowl with a determination that they were going to dramatize their new enthusiasm by the instructions which they had received on personal evangelism back into the communities where they came from, all 50 of the United States, many of the countries of the world. And you saw uh, an amazing bridging of the generation gap by the cross of Jesus Christ. One night when they announced that the oldest delegate present at the youth convention was 90 years old, the young people all stood up and cheered for him. They were happy about it all. The cops could almost go to sleep. Uh, normally they would have uh, a contingent of some 90 policemen. Uh, when a football game goes on in the Cotton Bowl, the Texans get a little boisterous. And so they would have 90 policemen there. Uh, by the last night of the Explo 72, they had only 10 policemen on duty. The crowds were amazingly cooperative, amazingly happy. On Thursday night, there came a drenching downpour, and the Cotton Bowl field, which was just clogged with people, young people all over the ground, all kinds of young people. 
Long hairs, short hairs, blacks, whites, you name it, they were all there. And Dr. Billy Graham came out in his white overcoat. He looked like Mr. Clean on the advertising thing. And he, he clutched his overcoat around him and he said, Now I know you're all very uncomfortable, so I'm going to make my message short. And they said, No! Just in one great chorus. I thought, man, that's Christianity. <laughs> they want something heavy. They wanted discipleship, and they wanted it preached to them. Now that was Explo 72. And the cotton bowl is empty now of the students who were there at that time, and they have gone away, and they've met in afterglow meetings. And they do have a rekindled faith, and many of them have shared it, and I've seen its results even in our own community here, at our own coffee house in Black Mountain, and out at Lake James at a retreat, and down at Florida at another meeting, and out in Missouri at another meeting, and I've seen its effect, and I've blessed God for it. It reminded me that the young people really wanted, as I have quoted one University of Florida professor say, to make an end run around the establishment and get back to Jesus. They wanted to go all the way back to him, back to him because they want the sword. And you know, when I began to think about Explo 72, I thought about Explo 73, the greatest miracle in the history of the Christian church. Since Pentecost was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, one man filled with the Holy Spirit who could change dramatically the whole course of human history, who is roughly responsible for half of your New Testament. Isn't that amazing? Think about that miracle, that Explo 33, that here, this pious young man, about 30 years of age, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he had to be 30. Stephen had been stoned to death. Stephen, by the way, was a layman. Stephen was a deacon in the church. It was Stephen's business to supervise the tables and to see that food was distributed among the poor. And yet Stephen could give a great testimony to Jesus. Stephen was a Greek. And in the city of Jerusalem, there would be synagogues especially that would appeal to those of a Grecian background, a Hellenistic background. So Stephen would be there making his testimony for Jesus. And on one such occasion, Saul of Tarsus was present. And Stephen spoke with such great unction and power from God that there was a great convicting of sin. And Stephen was taken out and stoned to death stoned to death this deacon in the church for his belief in Jesus. And as he was stoned to death, Stephen prayed as his own master had prayed from the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. Lay not this sin to their charge. And then he looked up to heaven and said, I see Jesus. And when he said that, the fury of the Jews was all the more and they pelted the life out of Stephen. What made this man, this Explo 33, that changed the world? I think, first of all, it was the witness of Stephen. St. Augustine, one of the great church fathers, said, without the prayers of Stephen, there would have been no St. Paul. That God answered Stephen's prayer when Saul of Tarsus was converted and became Paul. And we've had martyrs, probably more martyrs in this last quarter of a century 
that any time in the whole history of the Christian church, martyrs in China, martyrs in Eastern Europe, martyrs in Africa for their faith in Jesus. I was thinking today that four years ago, in about 28 days, to the best of my reckoning, I stood on the streets of Kisangani, which used to be called Stanleyville, and what used to be called the Belgian Congo, and then the Republic of the Congo, and now Zaire. And I stood there, and one of the American embassy officials pointed out to me a little stucco pavilion-type building, and he said, right there is where Dr. Paul Carlson was killed. Right there is where Dr. Paul Carlson was killed. He told me about it. How that this man who could have been evacuated stayed behind because he knew that there would be warfare and the need of a physician to treat wounds, only to help people, had been herded with a number of other prisoners on November the 24th, 1964, out into the town square after about uh, two months of house arrest. And then all of a sudden, everything went crazy. They knew that the Belgians had sent a relief expedition in, and so the, the Zimbas, the lions, the, the rebels began to fire into all of this group of people huddled in the grass. Michael Hoyt was the American consul there. He said that when the machine guns had run out of bullets and they were reloading, that as many survivors as could got up and ran for cover. Dr. Paul Carlson ran. They came to a little stucco pavilion, and he tried to assist someone else up over a fence-like affair. The bullets came stitching across the grass. They came up the back of Paul Carlson, and then they went through his head, and he fell backwards, dead. What makes a man like Paul Carlson? Well, first of all, he had a profound conversion experience as a result of his own Christian mother. I was sitting in a nice Miami hotel on November the 24th, 1964, looking at a television set. And I saw the television cameras as they panned a family gathering in California, Paul Carlson's family. And there was a reporter there with the microphone asking questions of the members of the family. And he asked Dr. Paul Carlson's brother how he felt about Paul's death. And he, is a, he was a doctor also and listened to what he replied. And this is an exact quotation. He said, we were, of course, praying for his life. But we prayed also for God's will to be done. Despite the emotion and the tears that well up in our hearts, we are reminded of a statement that our mother made years ago that God had given her each of her children and that she and dad had committed them to God's use as he saw fit. We feel that God has accomplished his purpose with Paul's life. Now, no matter what kind of church member you are, you're touched by a faith like that. This man who came up in the little Swedish evangelical covenant church who left his $13,000 a year doctor's job in California for the munificent sum of $3,200 a month as a Congo doctor. And he's not alone. There have been so many of them. And so our generation has had testimonies like this. And the question comes to me, 
When I think of people like Stephen, and when I think of people like Paul Carlson, God, do you require all Christians to be this dedicated? This is what a father said to me right back here in my study the other day. He came in and he took out of his hip pocket a Jesus people paper. And he read to me a part of a paragraph. And this man is a distinguished churchman. A distinguished churchman. A person of great promise, great generosity. And he said to me, you know, if you took Jesus out of my life, I'd still have my business, I'd have my family, I'd have music. I don't get it. He said, my own family has challenged me. Do you have to give everything to him? And I said, you have to give under the lordship of Jesus as much of yourself as you know to as much of him as you understand. And I flipped out my New Testament and I said, the New Testament knows of no other kind of Christianity. No other kind. The call is to obey. The call is to discipleship. Not 50% discipleship, 75% discipleship, 99% discipleship, but all that I know. I remember the first time I heard a preacher talk like that. I thought, that fanatic. <laughs> Doesn't he know that I go to the Presbyterian church? Presbyterians don't believe like that. And then I was haunted because what he was quoting from was the New Testament. And when I went back and I read the words of Jesus, it was all there. When I read in the book of Acts, it was all there. When I read in the epistles, it was all there. And then there came that night when I had to kneel down by my bed and say, Okay, God, I'm yours. I'll be whatever you want me to be. I'll go wherever you want me to go. No matter where it is, I will obey you. Just make it clear to me. And he made it clear that I was to go into the ministry and I went into the ministry. And I have not regretted it and I do not regret it now. If I had it to do again, I'd do it again with great joy. Well, here, the witness of Stephen's life, the witness of modern martyrs have undoubtedly stirred many of the Jesus generation people to look at the dedication in some Christians and compare it with the establishment and say, what's wrong? What's wrong? Is Christianity like making a bouquet of flowers and I put in a few tulips and I put in a few uh, daffodils, I put in a few other kinds of flowers, and so I put in a little religion, a little of Jesus? No. It's giving myself to him in wholehearted discipleship as much of myself as I know. That doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it means that I belong to him and he's at work in me. Now, nextly, you see that power at work for what happened to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus was nothing less than an appearance of the risen living Lord, the same risen Christ who came out of the tomb on that day that Mary of Magdala saw him and Peter saw him that same day that those two on the road to Emmaus saw him, that same Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. You see, this young Jew was dedicated to eradicating the monstrous name of Jesus 
of Nazareth as the Messiah and all of his followers from the planet Earth. And it was his desire when he heard that some of them had sought refuge in the ancient city of Damascus to go there and ferret them out and bring them back and put them in prison. So he went to the chief priest and he says, give me some letters of extradition. I've heard that there are some followers of this Jesus in Damascus, and I'm going there to get them. It didn't matter that it was 150 miles away. He had walked every mile of the way to get another Christian. But one day, one day, on that Damascus road, there shone a light from heaven about Saul of Tarsus and all who were with him. He was confounded by that light, and he was captivated by that voice, and he was confronted by the person of the living Christ. He was convicted in his own heart. For that voice said to him, Saul, in, in the Hebrew mother tongue, that he would understand, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He still didn't get the point. He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus. There's that name again. I am Jesus. How had he been persecuting him? He had consented to the stoning to death of Stephen. And so that was tantamount to persecuting Jesus. When we belong to him, those who hurt us hurt him because we are one with him. And we need to remember that. Well, this was no dupe of an imagination, no fantasy of his. This was no sunstroke. This was no aberration. This was no LSD trip. But this was a dramatic encounter with the risen Christ. And do you know why so many people don't live that kind of Christianity today? They don't believe Jesus ever rose. If he ever rose from the dead, what keeps him from still meeting people in a dramatic conversion experience? I was dramatically converted, and I grew up in a Christian church, a Presbyterian church. But there came a time when I realized that my life did not belong to Jesus. And when that point came, I surrendered it to him the best that I knew how, and he took me for whatever I am. And he takes us, each one, that way. That's that song that we hear sung, Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind. What we need is a healing of our mind by that healing relationship to the Lord Jesus. Well, there was another power that was at work in Explo, 70, uh, Explo 33. And that power was the power of the brotherliness of Ananias. You know, Saul of Tarsus was not only converted on the road to Damascus, but the word had already gotten to Damascus that he was on the way. And that once he got there, he intended to put a lot of people in prison and put them to death. And so when Saul of Tarsus arrived in Damascus, there was a man there whose name is Ananias. And this Ananias had been at prayer. And in his prayer, Jesus had spoken to him. And he said to him, Ananias, he called him by name. He said, Ananias, one Saul has gone to the house of a man named Judah who lives 
on Straight Street. Go there and find Judah's house and restore this man's sight to him. He is blind. But Ananias could not believe his ears and Ananias remonstrated with the Lord Jesus. He said, no, Lord. You don't know this man has come here not to do the church any good. He's come here to destroy the church. And the voice said to him again, Go thy way, Ananias. He is a chosen vessel. I have chosen him. And he is going to bear my name before kings and great folk, and he will suffer for me. And Ananias went there. And here you have what those of us who have read this account again and again know must be one of the loveliest things in all of the Bible. Because when he comes to Judas' house on Straight Street and he comes into this persecutor, you see the power of Christian love and brotherliness as Ananias looks at him and says, Brother, Saul, the Lord Jesus has appeared to me and told me to restore your sight. If most of us knew someone who who was our enemy in such great fashion, we would swallow it, that word brother. We would swallow it loving him, but not Ananias. Ananias came to him and said, Brother Saul. And that's what impressed me down in Dallas. Those kids great day when they sung you would you would see them join hands and giving that one-way sign they were singing with great joy i remember some bus drivers who couldn't find a place and some kids came and said you can come stay at our place we'll sleep on the floor i heard one boy say you saw brotherliness i saw roman catholic nuns all the baptist methodist whatever you got it didn't matter There was one in Jesus and a brotherliness that was in him, Brother Saul. I've often thought if I ever could build a church, no board of deacons would ever let me do it, but I'd like to call it the St. Ananias Presbyterian Church. (laughs) Because, Because of the brotherliness, just because he said those words, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has appeared to me. And then you know what he did? He took some water and he said, Saul of Tarsus, I baptize thee in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And those weepy old eyes that have been blinded for three days by that light, some of that incrustation flaked away and sloughed off and he opened his eyes and the first face he saw was his Christian brother he had come to kill, Ananias. Miracle, miracle, miracle. Explo 33 is in this brotherliness that can be shown to fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And then let me say lastly, the power of a surrendered life. Oh, we're always preoccupied in the church with restructuring and streamlining and programming. And these things need to be done. And there's much good that can be said for them. But, oh, God pity us if we get sidetracked from the main thing, which is a love for Jesus. Oh, God pity us if we substitute for witnessing 
witnessing by our life and by our death, witnessing to the power of the risen living Christ, witnessing by the brotherly love that Ananias showed, and witnessing by surrendering to the Lord as Saul of Tarsus had done, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He'd said, what wilt thou have me to do? What would he have you to do? We're always looking for new methods, but Jesus is looking for new men. We speak of new ways. Christ has a new way for us. He can put a new song in your heart and a new joy in your uh, heart by a faith in him that matures and grows and reaches others for him. Let me close by telling you one of my favorite stories from history. Sir Thomas More was one of the chancellors of King Henry VIII. And King Henry VIII had him arrested because uh, Sir Thomas More refused to grant him a divorce from Catherine, refused to recognize him as the supreme authority over the church, King Henry VIII. And so Sir Thomas More resigned, and King Henry VIII had him arrested. He was arrested and charged with high treason against the king. And he saw some of his own fellow religious people get up and testify against him. And they condemned him to death. And on the day of his execution, he forgave the man who was to behead him. He looked into the faces of those who had condemned him to death and he said these words. I have nothing further to say, my lords, except this, that just as Saul of Tarsus held the clothes of those who stoned Stephen to death and is now in heaven with Stephen and they are friends forever. So, my lords, my earnest prayer is that you and I shall both enjoy full salvation and be friends together in heaven, although you have now condemned me to death. That was the power of a changed life, a surrendered life in Sir Thomas More. This is not first century fantasy. This is Explo 33 and Explo 72, Paul and Dallas coming together a living faith in a risen Lord who is relevant to all of the social problems and all of the personal problems because he lives today in the hearts of those who are surrendered to him. Let us stand and be Oh God, our Father, some of us arise from church refreshed some of us arise bored. Some of us, oh God, go away wondering. But it's important how we go out these doors and down these aisles and out into the world again. We pray that you will help us to search our own hearts for the measure of our commitment to the Lord Jesus and test it in the light of Jesus' own words and his own followers and lead us to that point of surrender that we have given as much of ourselves as we know to as much of you as we understand.
In his name we pray.